Welcome to The Green Rush, a podcast about the intersection of cannabis, the capital markets, and culture. On a weekly basis, hosts Ann Donahoe, Lewis Goldberg, and Nick Opich of KCSA Strategic Communications speak with the business leaders, financial experts, cultural icons, legislators, and generally interesting people moving the cannabis industry forward. This week, we're speaking with Sam Chapman, campaign manager for Oregon's Measure 109, the Psilocybin Mushroom Services Program Initiative, a ballot measure in the works out west that is seeking the approval of the first therapeutic psilocybin program in the United States. As the effort's campaign manager, Sam was instrumental in the collection of 164,000 signatures of support, well over the 112,000 or so required for qualification. And it was all done against the backdrop of the coronavirus pandemic. If you know anything about the history of the legalization of marijuana, then this might all sound a touch familiar. This is one of those episodes. So don't sit back, lean forward. Now onto our conversation with Sam Chapman and Ann Donahoe. Sam Chapman, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, we are uh, about to uh, embark on a, on a holiday weekend. So um, really appreciate you taking the time uh, and uh, and you know, spending some time with us and, and talking about what this initiative is. So, you know, as you know, we are a cannabis podcast that kind of dabbles in psychedelics, but, um, you know, the audience, uh, of ours is, is investors and entrepreneurs and, and basically just interested folks. Um, so can you give our listeners just a quick overview of what psilocybin actually is and, and what are some of its potential medical uses? Yeah, absolutely. So thanks again for having me. Um, so I think I want to even step back a little bit further and start with the, the problem, um, which is that here in America, we have a mental health crisis. And specifically here in Oregon, that crisis is even more acute. According to Mental Health America, Oregon actually has the most severe mental health crisis in the country. Um, and so we believe that now, especially with the pandemic, that was that stat was prior to the pandemic and COVID. I can't imagine what it is now. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, we feel that now is a very um, ideal time to be introducing uh, a new option for folks who are struggling with depression, anxiety, and addiction um, to be able to seek more relief and through psilocybin therapy. So to answer the question, what is psilocybin? Psilocybin is the active compound found in hundreds of different species of mushrooms around the world. Um, and um, specifically, and actually, I'm just going to go ahead and share my screen here because um, I've got a presentation that talks about this. Um, uh, recently, rigorous studies from leading medical institutions uh, around the country, such as Johns Hopkins, UCLA, NYU, and many others, are showing that psilocybin has real promise for people who are struggling with depression, anxiety, and addiction. And in fact, it shows so much promise that the FDA has recently granted psilocybin therapy as a breakthrough therapy designation um, for both major depressive disorder and treatment-resistant depression. You may be wondering, okay, what is a breakthrough therapy designation? What goes into that? And so there are two main components. The first one is safety profile. We've known for some time that psilocybin is very safe uh, in that it is non-addictive and non-toxic. Now, of course, psilocybin can produce challenging experiences, which is exactly why our measure is uh, has strict regulations and controls, which I'll talk about a little bit um, in, a, in a couple of slides. But um, that's the first major component that goes into that designation. The second 
being that psilocybin demonstrates substantial improvement above and beyond what is currently available. So um, we probably all know someone or maybe ourselves have been on some type of anti-depression, anti-anxiety medication that you have to take on a daily basis. Psilocybin is showing real promise for people um, you know, where those medications may be falling short uh, as a potential um, way to wean off or even for some replace those daily medications just with um, a couple of initial psilocybin therapy sessions. And so um, we're really excited about what the research uh, has been showing to date uh, so far, and it's really leading the way um, on um, what, we're, what we're doing here in Oregon. So we're going to, uh, there's a, a really great slide presentation that Sam is sharing with us. So we'll make sure to put that in the show notes as well, um, because it's got some really interesting, um, you know, <laughs> institutions who are, who are, you know, researching this. So, um, you know, I think the, uh, the really interesting, um, aspect of, um, this potential treatment is that it is not, you know, like a chronic, you know, um, if you're on Paxil or if you're on Zoloft or, you know, you have to take it every day, whereas this, the, the treatment seems to be a little bit shorter. Um, and you kind of don't need that chronic prescription for, you know, the rest of your life. Right. Is that, do I have that right? Yes, that's correct. Um, it is not, psilocybin therapy is not something you would do on a daily basis by any means. Uh, and in fact, even, um, you know, for example, one of our, our, you know, 18 year Navy SEAL veterans talks about um, his experience utilizing psilocybin therapy. Um, and he's kind of a, a very unique case, but, um, you know, once every three months uh, is fairly, you know, is a fairly high rate um, for someone who, you know, his name is Chad Kusky. He was just featured on the front page of the Oregonian a couple of days ago here in Oregon, actually. Um, you know, and he came away, you know, 12 combat deployments in the SEALs for 18 years. He had everything, depression, anxiety, suicidality, anger, uh, addiction to alcohol and other substance use disorders. Um, and psilocybin, after just one session, helped him understand um, why, you know, he was not only why he was doing those things, but he helped it helped him understand that he had a, he had a problem. Right. Um, and so really helping break some of those mental loops that people get stuck in with depression, anxiety and addiction. That's one of the things that psilocybin can do is really help people break out of those mental loops and really see themselves in a different light. Um, and, you know, that's that's something that, um, again, is not a, a daily type of thing. Um, you know, once a year would probably be more of a common um, thing. You know, Chad is a, a specific example as a, a Navy SEAL that's gone through a lot. Obviously, it's once every three months um, is, a, is a pretty high rate. Um, but again, he's a unique situation. Can you talk about, um, you know, specifically, you know, what this, this initiative does, what measure, it's measure 109, right? That's correct. Yes. Okay. Measure 109, the psilocybin therapy campaign here in Oregon. So, Yes, this measure um, does a couple of things. First and foremost, it establishes a regulatory framework within the Oregon Health Authority that will allow trained and certified practitioners to administer psilocybin services at specially licensed centers. And I'll talk a little bit about that more in a second. Um, another thing that it does is it will establish an Oregon psilocybin advisory board that will be appointed by the governor. That board will be made up of 14 to 16 different individuals, um, you know, that have backgrounds in healthcare. So doctors, naturopaths, you know, therapists, researchers, other clinicians, um, you know, community stakeholders, et cetera, that will all convene and work with the health authority during a two-year rule implementation process 
to really define a lot more of the details on what certifications and training requirements are facilitators going to need to have, what protections need to be in place to ensure that, you know, um, people are being screened correctly that may have existing health conditions that could provide a more a bit more of a complex equation as to whether or not someone can safely access psilocybin therapy. Um, so again, to be clear, once this passes in November, no licenses will be issued until that two-year rulemaking period has ended, um, and a lot of those details will be will be carried out um, and, and and fleshed out in that two-year rulemaking period. Um, you know, there will also be a, a tracking system for all psilocybin products um, and uh, some other basic things of that nature. The other thing that I'll say um, that's almost just as important and more important for some audiences is to make incredibly clear what this measure does not do. This measure does not legalize psilocybin. There will be no retail sales allowed. No one will be taking or consuming psilocybin outside of a licensed supervised context uh, under the supervision of a trained facilitator. So um, no one's strolling into a, into a dispensary and picking up some mushrooms. Okay. Nope. This is not a dispensary model. And this, I would, I would push back on even any comparisons to medical cannabis. Again, there's no retail um, model within this. People are going to have to meet with a, licensed facilitator first and foremost to do a health and risk assessment to determine um, their mental and physical ability to safely participate in the program. So there will be a screening process first and foremost uh, that will exist before anyone actually experiences the psilocybin session itself. Uh, once they assumingly uh, pass that preparation session, then the psilocybin therapy session itself will occur again at a licensed supervised center under the supervision of a trained and certified professional the entire time. And of course, the third aspect would be integration where someone would come back, you know, a week or so after the psilocybin therapy experience to really work with the facilitator to unpack that experience and really understand it uh, to a greater degree. We know based on the research that the more integration work psilocybin therapy participants can do, the uh, longer those positive benefits and effects um, can be realized. So, uh, integration is definitely an important aspect of that process. So this this measure is really is really nuanced and really methodical. Um, what is some of the pushback that you're getting? Or you know, you mentioned that it's really not a fair comparison, um, you know, to the to the cannabis initiative, um, you know, and either the the Compassionate Use Act or uh, the Oregon uh, Medical Marijuana Act. Um, are, so I guess tell us why it's unfair to lump them together, and then what is some of the pushback you are seeing from um, from people in the state? Yeah, so to, to answer the first question, I mean, this is the first of its kind model where, you know, we're really creating a new lane for psilocybin therapy to enter into a therapeutic context. And so, you know, that's why it's not really fair to compare it to anything that exists because nothing like this exists right now. And so, um, except for, of course, at the federal clinical trial model. Um, which, again, we would not be here had it not be for all of the good clinical research that's going on at the federal level. Um, you know, the difference between what's going on within the clinical trials and what we're looking to create here in Oregon is that in the clinical trials, you have to have a qualifying condition. You have to fall within the category of depression or anxiety or, you know, uh, addiction, et cetera. Um, here in Oregon, we're creating a model that says, yes, if you, you know, fall within, of those within one of those boxes, you should be able to have access psilocybin therapy. And so long as you can show that you can safely 
access and benefit from psilocybin therapy, we believe anyone should be able to have access. So that includes people that are generally healthy, that simply want to access psilocybin therapy for personal growth and wellness. We believe that they should be able to have that opportunity as well. So we believe that you know, if we're able to pass this here in Oregon, we're going to be setting the standard for other states to follow in terms of really ensuring that the regulations and requirements and safeguards that exist the clinical model right now lay the foundation for this program. But the nuance being, we want to create as much access to as many people as possible that stand to benefit from accessing psilocybin therapy. So um, that's the answer to the first question. The second question, what about pushback and opposition? We do not have any well-organized, well-funded opposition. The name of the game for this wow. campaign is education. Um, you know, the average person, uh, based on our polling and our focus groups, doesn't really know what psilocybin is. And so we know, based on the polling that we've done, when we can provide just a little bit of information in a fairly short amount of time, we can, have, we can win this campaign. So when we're able to explain to people what psilocybin is, what the research says, what our measure does in terms of providing protections and regulations and safeguards, what our measure does not do, this is not legalization, there's not gonna be mushroom stores on every corner, there's no branding or advertising allowed under our measure. Um, and who stands to benefit from having access? People that have been given terminal diagnoses that are suffering from end-of-life anxiety and depression, right? Veteran populations. And, you know, as of late, communities that are being disproportionately affected by COVID that are now mm -hmm. experiencing depression, anxiety at astronomical rates. Yep. Everyone knows someone that falls right. into one of those categories. And so when we're able to couple the science with the emotional appeal and helping people understand that we all know someone that stands to benefit, a majority of Oregon voters are with us. So we've got our work cut out for us and we know what we need to do to win in November. Can you talk about why Oregon is so special? Um, you know, they are, you know, you talked about the disproportionate, you know, number of people suffering from either depression, anxiety, mental illness in general. Um, but, you know, Oregon has really led the way um, for stuff like this, you know, for, and I know I'm not supposed to compare it to cannabis, but I'm going to for a moment, <laughs> um, you know, and, and I think that, that there is something very special about Oregon. Why, why Oregon? Why not, why not Washington? Why not Colorado? Why not California? with with taking the first steps here it's it's a great question i mean you're right to point out that you know not even just drug policy right but you know oregon pioneered uh death with dignity mm -hmm. act um, we pi we helped pioneer same-sex marriage um whether it's something in the water or just our general progressive nature for human rights and caring about other people Oregon has always been one of the first states to, to, to lead the way. And so we're really excited to be able to continue to lead the way and really creating this new vehicle um, initially, you know, uh, for psilocybin, right? Um, this is just psilocybin. There are not other um, plant medicines that are being cons uh, considered under this measure, but this is a model that in theory could be expanded um, from a therapeutic context. And I think, um, you know, we've got our work cut out for us right now. We're keeping our eye on the ball, but, um, you know, I very much expect, um, you know, to a certain degree that there's going to be a lot of additional considerations down the road as the research continues to lead the way. Um, but right now we're, we're really focused on psilocybin therapy and how that can help people suffering. Again, Oregon has the highest rates of mental health illness in the country. So if there was one answer as to why Oregon, that's probably that's the why. best one. Yeah. Well, I mean, and you talked about, um, you know, the... <laughs> 
I guess maybe a potential knock on effect or uh, maybe that's not the right phrase for it. But, you know, mushrooms aren't the only naturally occurring psychedelic. Um, there's uh, peyote or DMT. Are, are these do you see a runway for for psychedelics like this in the future? Or are you just so laser focused, um, you know, on on psilocybin that that this just isn't even in your periphery right now? Yeah, we're super focused on what we've got in front of us right now. Like, leave me alone, Anne. I need to finish this. <laughs> no, well, I mean, you know, it's just, uh, you know, in order to like be, continue to have success in this field, like we, we can't afford to take our eye off the ball for yeah. one second. Like, you know, COVID stopped us dead in our tracks in terms of collecting signatures. We had to collect 35,000 signatures by mail, which had oh never been God. done before. Yeah. Um, and we ended up collecting 164,000 signatures um, from Oregonians across the state in over 300 different cities. I didn't even know there was 300 cities in Oregon, to be honest. <laughs> me neither. Um, that it, was new information. But it really, it really goes to show how much psilocybin in our measure transcends partisan politics. You know, our polling shows that when we're able to present the basic information that I referenced earlier, we get big swings in all three categories, big swings from Democrats, big swings from independents, big swings in Republicans, right? And so this is something that will continue to transcend partisan politics in a really big way. And, you know, just winning in November really is like just the end of chapter two. Uh, chapter three is the two-year implementation phase, right? When we really, you know, we'll have the opportunity to do this right. Um, or not. And so the, the, the proof will be in the pudding, uh, as they say, over the next couple of years is once we get this done in November, really making sure that, you know, we can add in the components to the existing foundation and the measure to make sure that this is really something that can lead the way. And I think, you know, to, to look at, you know, one of the fair comparisons, I think that is a lesson that we learn from the cannabis industry. While not comparative, there are lessons to be learned. And I think one of the lessons, especially from the cannabis industry, is that you know, it doesn't matter uh, whether the law that you pass is good or terrible. If you're a first state to move forward on something, you will be the example that other states will look at for the next decade. It does not matter whether you got it right or it's terrible. You will be the example. And that's what we saw in cannabis. I expect the same thing to happen here within psilocybin and the larger psychedelic movement in general within uh, state laws. Um, we have an opportunity to really set the bar in a way um, that I think we might have missed the boat on in some of the initial um, first cannabis states that came online for adult use. No pressure. So I guess, you know, you've gotten a lot of, um, you know, national attention for this. Um, you know, rightly so. It took a lot of hard work, um, you know, and you, your, your foundation is so um, educational um, that, that I think that it worked really well. What are some other states or other, like, do you have counterparts in other states that are just like, you know, t like, you know, asking you for advice or are they just like watching you so closely that, you know, they're, you know, so that they can, you know, maybe next year it's Colorado and Washington and California. Well, what, you know, are, are, is your phone ringing off the hook is my question. The phone is definitely ringing off the hook um, for numerous different reasons. Um, but, you know, I think there's a lot of wait and see right now. I think, you know, prior to making the ballot, there's a very large contingency of people that didn't believe that we'd be able to make the ballot. Right. <laughs> um, and, you know, that's fine. I'm, I, I love being the underdog. Uh, I love that challenge. And I think that's another position that Oregon really gets to play and, and, and show the status quo that, you know, hey, people are ready for this, you know, uh, and not just here in Oregon, right? Um, so, 
Yes, I have definitely received calls from people in California and Washington and Colorado and D.C., right? A lot of the places where we have seen local momentum, at least on the decriminalization side. Mm -hmm. Um, And there is no doubt in my mind that, you know, either legislation and or ballot measures will be introduced in 2022. Um, You know, there was a couple of attempts um, to put other things on the ballot for 2020, all of which failed. Oregon is the lone state uh, that will have any type of... um, you know, psilocybin or for that matter, psychedelic potential change in, in statute at the state level uh, in the November 2020 election. So it's all eyes on us. Um, and again, we we're stepping up to the challenge in a really big way. We, we look forward to continue to put W's on the board. And the next one is this November, you know, um, getting this measure enshrined in statute and then getting right back to work on, on really li- laying out the details of implementation. I want to, we, you know, we talk to a lot of entrepreneurs um, and, and a lot of, you know, trendsetters and, and risk takers on, on this podcast. Um, and, and you certainly fit into that category. Um, what, why you, why this initiative? Um, talk a little bit about, about yourself and your background and, and, and what brought you here. Sure. Yeah. Um, so I've been involved with progressive drug policy reform movements for 12 years and, you know, um, maybe one of the youngest people that can say that I turned 31 on Monday. Ah, happy birthday. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. So I originally got involved with a group called students for sensible drug policy. Um, and that really helped me understand that, you know, there are three boxes in life that if I can check all three, I'm a pretty happy person. The first is doing something that I'm passionate about. The second thing is doing things I'm passionate about that happens to be helping people. And the third thing is, being able to check the first two boxes and just make a living wage doing it. And so I found uh, out very early on uh, while I was in college um, that I could do those things through drug policy. You know, I also recognized very early on my white male privilege within this movement and how lucky I was. Um, You know, I certainly uh, got in trouble a couple of times, um, you know, early on at the late end of my high school uh, career. Um, and got lucky that I didn't get my student loans taken away. You know, I had, you know, several friends of color that, you know, also got charged with like cannabis possession um, that, you know, did not get off the hook like I got let off the hook. They Mm -hmm. did, you know, jail time. Uh, I did not. And so I recognized very early on that my privilege within this movement could be leveraged to help change outdated, racist, draconian drug laws. And so very quickly after graduating college, um, I actually ended up co-authoring the law that legalized medical cannabis dispensaries here in Oregon, House Bill 3460. Um, And so out of the gate, I found myself at the intersection between very passionate activists and the decision makers. And I found out that my niche was translating between those two groups, Mm -hmm. helping passionate people uh, who wanted to change laws understand how to play the game of politics and helping politicians understand how they stand to benefit by, you know, uh, understanding that these new issues may be big and scary, but if you play it right, they can help you get elected or reelected. And so I've definitely played both sides of the fence in terms of you know, consulting with activists and, and organizations that want to change laws and consulting with elected politicians on how to better position themselves to the general public um, that, you know, is public opinion is continuously changing on these drug policy issues. Drug policy in general is continuing to be less of a partisan issue. And so 
Um, I enjoy living at that intersection. Um, and, you know, through the evolution of cannabis here in Oregon, I was very involved in helping write rules and regulations for medical cannabis dispensaries. Um, I was also deeply involved in, you know, the legalization movement here in Oregon. I found myself going down um, much more of an entrepreneurial business path, which was not intentional, um, but was certainly an experience I wouldn't, I would not trade in. You know, I ended up helping um, license over 50 different retailers throughout the state. I started New Economy Consulting, which was a cannabis consulting firm. Um, as soon as I found out that I had clients that were buying million-dollar buildings, uh, I decided I'd be stupid not to go get my real estate broker's license. So for a while there. Um, I also did commercial real estate within the cannabis industry on top of licensing. Um, and that ended up evolving into mergers and acquisitions. I was helping clients buy and sell cannabis real estate and licenses because um, I helped create that program. So um, I think I would have been stupid not to um, take advantage of that opportunity. But, you know, to be honest, at the end of the day, one day I just woke up and I realized doing mergers and acquisitions within the cannabis industry was not something I was interested in doing anymore. Um, so I started to kind of, you know, really open up a door for what the next opportunity would be. And that's when psilocybin therapy uh, walked through that door in a really big way. And so um, I was on the short list for people that were being considered to actually be hired for the political outreach uh, coordinator position on the campaign, which I interviewed for and then did not get the position because um, I was overqualified. And that's when they decided they wanted to hire me for a campaign manager. Um, so that's the nutshell trajectory of my personal history from medical cannabis to adult use to helping cities and counties draft regulations um, and rolling out the cannabis program into entrepreneurial business side of things. And, you know, I, I again, I wouldn't trade in those experiences for the world, but I can't tell you how refreshing and exciting and inspiring it is to be back on the forefront of drug policy reform, really working on an issue that sure, there's money to be made, there are profit models, but I'm not really interested in those. This is an issue that is focused on creating outcomes for people who are suffering. And that's what I get up excited to do every single day now. So I, I'm incredibly grateful for the opportunity to work on this. I mean, any chance you'll be on the ballot one day? <sighs> you know, it's... Uh, are we gonna make news here, Sam? <laughs> Nah, I mean, I get that question pretty often. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty set uh, with what is probably going to be a decent future for the next couple of years um, running campaigns that have to do with creating more opportunities within the psychedelic medicine space. Um, it's not off the table, but, you know, I've got uh, a couple of years ahead of me to, to figure out what all that looks like. What I can tell you after this campaign is over is I'm going to take two months off. Oh, good for you. Uh, yes, you definitely need a beach or a, a woods, a forest in your life. Um, so I, I kind of want to loop, loop this conversation and end it with, um, uh, with, you know, finances. So, um, you know, politics, politics is all about money, right? So, um, you know, you guys are, are well-funded, um, you know, from, from the beginning, but we think that, you know, we want to make sure that, you know, people who are interested in, in donating and taking action, um, can do that as well. So can you just talk a little bit about the history of who funded this campaign there? There are small, um, folks like, um, like the Bronner family of, of Bronner soap fame for lack of, a better word. Um, so can you talk a little bit about them, their involvement, and then what people can do, what our listeners can do right now? Yeah, absolutely. So we wouldn't be here talking had it not been for David Bronner and the Bronner family of Dr. Bronner's Magic Soaps. Um, you know, the Bronner family uh, are, they're no strangers to depression. 
uh, and mental health issues. Um, David himself is not shy to share his own personal experiences with mental health struggles. And so, you know, if you do any research on the Bronner family, you know, they are um, the steward of compassionate, you know, corporate giving um, to, you know, issues from environmentalism to drug policy reform. And so we just happen to be one of the many beneficiaries um, of their incredibly generous contributions to this campaign. Um, you know, um, the Bronner family, I think, has um, contributed um, almost around $2 million to our campaign now, which is great. Um, with, with that being said, that is not going to get us across the finish line. We are still very much in fundraising mode. Um, you know, in Oregon, we we believe about 2.2 million people are going to be casting votes in November. And so, you know, we need 50% plus one to win. So that means we need to reach about 1.1, 1.2 million Oregon voters to make sure they vote yes. Um, so we have, you know, we believe we have about 800,000 people that are ready to vote yes now, which leaves us at about a quarter of a million people deficit that we need to change from no or maybe to yes. Uh, and so that's no small effort. And what that comes down to is, of course, grassroots organizing. We have an amazing, rapidly growing grassroots base. But at the end of the day, 80% of our budget is paid media. So we still need to identify and raise at least another $1.5 million to be able to do the TV and digital ad buys that we need to reach those Oregonians uh, that we know need to vote yes. So um, I would very much encourage anyone out there that is um, interested in learning more about the campaign, especially if you're someone who is capable of potentially contributing you know, $10,000 or more, uh, I'd be happy to give you a one-on-one -on -one campaign briefing. You can reach out to me at sam at voteyesson109.org. Uh, I'd be happy to schedule a campaign briefing. Again, I'll be very clear, that is for serious uh, potential donors only. Uh, I've, I've, I've definitely given plenty of presentations to people who just wanted information. Um, you know, we do our vetting on those meetings that we take. So yeah. please, please be serious about that. But um, you know, and if you just want to learn more uh, in general about uh, our campaign, again, vote yes on 109.org is the best place to go to learn more information. Okay, green rushers, open up your open up your wallets. Um, okay, so we'll we'll stick a link in the show notes um, to to everything that that Sam has talked about. Um, Sam, thank you so much. You've been so generous with your time. Um, I appreciate everything, uh, and congratulations on success so far. And good luck in November. Thank you so much. And thanks for having me. Our thanks to Sam Chapman, campaign manager for the Psilocybin Services Initiative. For more information on how you can donate your money or your time, go to voteyesson109.org. And as always, thanks for listening. If you want to chat with us, reach out on Twitter at the underscore Green Rush or on Instagram at the Green Rush underscore podcast or drop us an email at greenrush at kcsa.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the Green Rush in your favorite podcatcher. One take, Shay. One take.